Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Nathan Runkle, the founder and president of Mercy for Animals. Mercy for Animals is a national organization that promotes compassionate food choices and policies increasingly recognized for its influential undercover video investigations of factory farming operations, which have engendered monumental changes at corporate behemoths like McDonald's and Walmart. We'll discuss some of those undercover investigations and other aspects of Mercy's for animals when we speak with Nathan Runkle in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Also later in the show, we'll hear my brief conversation with Joan Jett, the rocker and lifelong animal advocate who, with her band The Blackhearts, will open for The Who on April 15th in Tampa, and three days later will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, for our opening animal song this morning, let's hear from the fabulous Lake Street Dive with Rabbit Animal now on Talking Animals. That's Lake Street Dive with Rabbit Animal. To get us started this morning, right now, let's proceed with our conversation with Nathan Runkle, founder and president of Mercy for Animals, with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing us at dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. Let's welcome Nathan Runkle to Talk Animals. Good morning, Nathan. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I've got all kinds of topics I want to cover with you, including some uh, philosophical questions later on. But since this is the first time we've spoken, uh, let's launch uh, this thing on, on kind of more of a remedial level at first, uh, starting really at, at the beginning. What, what prompted you to, uh, to found uh, Mercy for Animals? Yeah, well, Mercy for Animals was founded 15 years ago after a farmed animal abuse case at my local high school in rural Ohio. Uh, This was an incident that involved the agricultural class teacher, who was also a pig farmer, bringing to school a bucket of day-old piglets to be used in a dissection project. And these are piglets that he had tried to kill that morning on his farm, But when he arrived to the school, one of the piglets was still alive. So a student in the class who also did part-time work on the teacher's pig farm took this surviving piglet by her hind leg and slammed her head first into the ground in an attempt to kill her. Now, this piglet still didn't die. She had such a spark for life. And a few of the students were just so appalled by this that they grabbed this dying piglet, left the classroom went to another teacher who was known as being an animal protection advocate. Uh, She left the school and had this piglet euthanized. Now, animal cruelty charges ended up being filed against both the student and the teacher who were involved in this incident. It went to court, but the very first day of that trial, those charges were dismissed uh, of animal cruelty because it's considered standard agricultural practice to slam baby piglets headfirst into the ground. And In Ohio, like 30 other states in this country, if something is considered standard agricultural practice, it's exempt from cruelty prosecution, no matter how much pain and suffering it may cause the animals. So this case, 15 years ago, illustrated to me that there needed to be an organization to speak up on behalf of farmed animals in this small town in Ohio, and Mercy for Animals has grown from there. And so, Nathan, you were how old when when the uh, horrible piglet incident happened? I was 15. Yeah. So obviously precocious, to say the least, I guess, to be moved by that, to found an organization that would deal with the uh, horrible inequality of, of that kind of law and sort of what was considered, quote unquote, the, the norm. So uh, had you have, uh, did you have other sort of involvement or aspirations as, as a youngster and this was just sort of the next step or, or is this something that sort of served as your first kind of catalyst in that way? You know, I think like most children, I I grew up with a natural affinity for animals. Um, I I very much considered our family's dogs and cats to be my friends and and companions. And, um, you know, growing up on a small farm, I spent much of my time exploring the the nearby wilderness with, with our companion animals. And they were the first who taught me that all animals have a desire for freedom and companionship and compassion. And, um, you know, growing up in this environment, I also witnessed a lot of animal abuse. And that's something that always felt very wrong to me. So I guess you could say that this was some deeply rooted um, sense of injustice that I saw um, happening to animals and and always saw that. And I, I had gone vegetarian a number of years before this incident after learning about factory farming. But, but this incident was, was really the catalyst to bring the issue of cruelty and exploitation to farmed animals um, home um, and literally in, in our backyard in a case that I think just so perfectly illustrated the hypocrisy that we have in this country uh, between the way in which we view and, and see dogs and cats and how they should be treated and how we oftentimes uh, view farmed animals as inhabiting some very different world, um, and, and we don't hold ourselves to the same ethical standards for how they should be treated. Um, and, and ultimately, that's what led to, to the organization being formed. Sure. But again, I think what's, what's striking, or at least a couple things that are striking about that, is, is that you were reacting that way at 15, which again, is sort of well beyond, beyond your, your years, even though you had already gone vegetarian, you had thought about some of these things. But also, when you were recounting that story a moment ago, there were other sort of, it sounded like, like-minded kids, and and these kind of stories with how something gets started, like what you started with Mercy for Animals, are, are notable. Like, I'm sure they were bothered and horrified, as you sort of explained. But, I mean, you said, hey, this is so wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. And that's 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 different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, like I said, I think that, that most kids, uh, regardless of, of where they, they grow up, um, are born with a natural sense 
sense of empathy towards animals, and, and this includes kids that are, are born and raised in, in uh, rural agricultural areas. I saw a lot of kids who went through the 4-H programs, raising animals, becoming very attached to them, and then um, sending them to slaughter, who were just absolutely devastated by this. And they were told by their, their family and, and by their 4-H counselors that this is just the way that things are and that they have to get over it. And you know, why I decided to form an organization versus going along with that, um, I don't know that I'll ever have an answer to that. Yeah. I guess that's a question of, of why some people become activists when they see any sort of injustice and others sit at the sideline. But it is interesting probably now with, with, with 15 years or so experience and, and sort of the perspective that's come with that to look back and just say, hey, in some way was this destiny or maybe to put it another way, if that incident hadn't ha- happened to what extent do you feel there would have been a different one around that time or nearby that would have similarly served as a catalyst? I mean, it just sounds like you were sort of primed to act in some way. It's just more a matter of maybe what what uh, what was, you know actually triggered that uh, that activism. Yeah, that's that's a good question, and I guess we'll never know. <laughs> All right, maybe you could uh, describe the early years then of Mercy for Animals once uh, once you had launched it as a uh, as a fifteen year old, and and maybe what you would consider some of the the early achievements in those very first years. Yeah, you know, uh, this was before the the day of social media. This was before the the day of of YouTube, um, and and it was a, a very different world in terms of of advocating on behalf of of animals. The only way that we could really get our message out was. To, to get the mainstream media to pay attention long enough that hopefully they would show a few seconds of footage of inside factory farms or slaughterhouses. So I, I think that the, the world that we live in now, especially as, as activists, um, has just so broadly expanded our ability to advocate for change. Um, we can now literally reach millions of people in a day or two with with a YouTube video showing animals on factory farms. We're in in the past, um, that that was just simply not uh, an option that was was uh, available to us, and I think that we're starting to really see the ripple effects of this new transparency um, that that we're able to have within our food supply and within communication with the number of, of people adopting vegetarian vegan diets, um, continuing to increase uh, meat consumption, declining. Um, but but the early days of, of Mercy for Animals was really um, you know, a lot of, of grassroots advocacy work trying to get people to pay attention to these issues within our community. I would say one noticeable uh, milestone was about two years into the organization, we started doing investigations and open rescues inside of the largest egg factory farms in Ohio. Um, at this time, Ohio was the largest egg producing state in the entire country. And uh, we would go in at night and we would document the conditions of the animals there, uh, you know, birds crowded into cages where they could hardly move, uh, barely spread their wings, uh, birds trapped under feeding troughs, uh, hooked by their skin uh, to cage wire, live birds thrown into trash cans while they're still alive. And we would document that, and we would take it to the local media. We'd hold press conferences, and uh, we would start a discussion about factory farming and, and the ethics of our food choices. Um, a few years after that, we started doing employment-based investigations where we would get activists hired inside of factory farms and slaughterhouses and document with pinhole-sized hidden cameras the daily atrocities that these animals are subjected to. And from those investigations, we started to get landmark criminal prosecutions uh, of animal abusers and animal abusing companies from facilities from, from coast to coast. We started to get major food companies to acknowledge the cruelty in their supply chain and start to adopt more meaningful animal welfare standards. So these investigations really um, open the door for us to show consumers, to show the media, to show companies, to show legislators what's really happening to animals on these factory farms and push, push for meaningful changes. Were those investigations kind of what also widened out uh, Mercy for Animals from the kind of Ohio base to states beyond and then obviously nationally uh, uh, with some, some of the results of those uh, early investigations? Yeah, absolutely. Once we started doing these employment-based investigations, we were sending investigators all over the country, um, so giving us a, a more nas- national reach. 
Um, and, and the organization really took on a national face uh, soon, soon after uh, launching these investigations. So, and then really, the kind of sounds like the roots of uh, the more sophisticated, and in many cases, probably more uh, influential or impactful investigations of, of recent years, which I definitely want to come back to in, in a moment. But um, let me let folks know who, who just might be tuning in. My guest is Nathan Runkel, founder and president of Mercy for Animals. If you'd like to ask Nathan a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. There's a, sort of a fairly broad slate of um, missions, I think, for, for Mercy for Animals. So let, let's talk a little bit about what might be the guiding principles of, of the organization's efforts to encourage the, the public to adopt a vegan diet, which is sort of a core part of the mission, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the mission of Mercy for Animals is to prevent cruelty to farmed animals and promote compassionate food choices and policies. And we work under four program areas. Uh, the first is undercover investigations. The second is education. The third is corporate outreach. And the fourth is legal advocacy. And we see these various program areas really working in unison to move society forward uh, regarding our treatment uh, and and, and legal um, protections of of farmed animals. So uh, education is our vegan advocacy program, and this is largely focused on showing people the whys and hows of adopting a plant-based diet. So everything from showing factory farm footage to um, teenagers and students to providing uh, free veg starter guides and online resources that really show people how to make this transition. Um, Our legal advocacy work is focused on enforcing the few anti-cruelty laws uh, and protections that are on the book, really mostly on a state level to protect farmed animals, um, also to push for stronger state and federal protections of farmed animals. And, and third, um, on really on the defensive to fight off ag-gag legislation and other repressive types of legislation that seeks to silence and intimidate whistleblowers or to remove the few protections that are on the books for farmed animals. Our corporate outreach work seeks to get the largest food companies to adopt meaningful animal welfare changes like doing away with gestation crates for breeding pigs, these two feet wide metal stalls where pigs can't even turn around, getting rid of veal crates where baby calves are kept chained by their necks, unable to turn around, and and battery cages for egg-lying hens, as well as mutilations, cutting off the the tails of of cows used for dairy or burning out their their horns without any painkillers. And then, of course, our investigations, which is really the lifeblood of all of these programs and and many of the successes that we see um, from these other campaigns uh, are direct result of the evidence gathered from our investigators inside of of various factory farms. Wow, that is one ambitious slate of, uh, of <laughs> items. So, uh, but but again, as you as you note, they all sort of uh, coalesce uh, along the ways, and, and some things are, are all ultimately kind of driven by the investigations. Which, like I said, I do want to get into in just one moment. But but I just I, I'm interested to, to know what specific measures do the Mercy for Animals folks who who work in in the side of things to help people learn about uh, adopting a plant based diet to, to sort of dissolve the the cognitive dissonance of people who would passionately declaim that they're huge animal lovers as as they take another bite of their cheeseburger. I mean, that it just seems like that's sort of a fundamental challenge in, in the at least the education wing that you've uh, just outlined. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually have a specific campaign called Why Love One But Eat the Other, and it's a series of ads and, and brochures and advertisements that uh, have a picture of a puppy and a piglet sitting side by side. The other has a picture of a chick and a kitten sitting side by side. And they ask the very simple question of why love one but eat the other. And I think it really puts into focus the hypocrisy that we have in our society. Again, um, viewing dogs and cats as having a special set of interests and feelings in farmed animals as not being worthy of our consideration. And of course, that is a view that is not supported in the very least by science, which of course tells us that all animals have the ability to feel pain and suffering, but also joy, happiness, and loneliness in the very same way. In fact, studies show that if intelligence was a measure of who we should be giving consideration to, pigs are far more intelligent than dogs. So I, I think that 
Um, we, we live in a country where many people share their homes with dogs and cats. We know these animals. We consider them members of our family. We know how intelligent they are. We know that they get excited when we come home, that they have their favorite toys, that they um, have their best friends. But very few of us uh, grow up with pigs or cows or chickens. So we don't get to know these animals as individuals. We don't get to form the same amount of empathy for them or for their plight. So that's a big part of what we do at Mercy for Animals is try to bridge this gap uh, between the very justified feelings of concern that, that most Americans have for dogs and cats and really bring farmed animals into focus. Because when we're talking about animals in our country, we're talking about farmed animals. This is 98% of all the animals that are raised and killed uh, every year in the United States by humans are farmed animals. Yet when you look at the amount of resources that go into helping farmed animals versus other animals, look at the amount of public attention that they receive versus dogs and cats, um, unfortunately, they really seem to have the fewest friends and the fewest allies working on their behalf. So so we're working to change that. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned hypocrisy, which I think probably certainly applies. But I, I think a phrase I mentioned, too, for a lot of people, at least, I think is actually maybe more more what's going on. And it is a, a form of cognitive dissonance where, as you say, the, the puppy that's sitting there alongside the piglet and other than in that poster and hopefully then. Uh, or other parts of the campaign, people really don't just make that connection. So often that connection, hopefully, can be made for them through these campaign, uh, campaigns and other educational efforts. But because, again, it, a lot of times it's it's people just don't, they just don't think in, the, in those terms. They're just not, you know, they're, unfortunately, they're not programmed that way. And that's part of the thing of, of an educational effort to to reprogram people. But there's just like a, a, a gulf there that sometimes can't initially be uh, be bridged, but hopefully over time it can be. Absolutely. So let's take a let's take a call. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Nathan Runkle. Hey, Nathan. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Hey, thanks for doing what you do. Hey, you said that uh, you went vegetarian. Are you a vegan today? I am a vegan. Yes, I've been vegan for uh, 16 years. Amen. Me too. Uh, sometimes I feel like I was put on this planet from another universe. You know, I come here and I look around and everybody's eating each other. It's pretty disgusting. Uh, what can you tell us about the laws that don't allow people to take pictures of these factory farms? You know, we want to expose this horrific treatment of these farm animals, but yet when you take pictures, you wind up in jail. The federal government is protecting these farms. Remember that beef campaign? Beef, it's what's for dinner. That was uh, funded by your tax dollars. So you and I are fighting a battle against the government, beef industry, the chicken industry, the pig industry, and uh, I just don't see anything changing. So all I can do is for myself, you know, is uh, stay away from that poison myself. What do you think? Yeah, well, again, thank you for everything that you're you're doing on behalf of these, these animals. And to, to answer your question, um, and, and thank you for raising it. Um, it. We're in a very scary time uh, in this country. Uh, there are a number of states who have passed and even more who have considered what are deemed ag-gag laws. Um, and these are bills that appear in, in a variety of shapes and sizes, but the underlying motive and intent of these bills is to silence and intimidate whistleblowers prevent investigations inside of factory farms and slaughterhouses exposing animal cruelty. And some of the biggest agriculture states in the country have already moved past this legislation, including Iowa, which is the largest pork and beef producing state in the country. Um, Idaho, which is one of the top dairy producing states, has also passed a similar uh, bill and piece of legislation. Utah and, and others. So these are bills that are being heavily pushed and introduced at the at the urging of the meat and oftentimes dairy industries, as was the case in Utah, the or Idaho, I'm sorry. The Idaho uh, bill was introduced immediately following a Mercy for Animals investigation into the state's largest dairy farm, which showed workers beating animals, uh, lifting them up with forklifts, dragging them, um, stabbing them, all sorts of sadistic cruelty. And w- which led to multiple workers being charged with animal cruelty. Now, what was the response from the dairy industry or from legislators in that state? Not to increase animal animal cruelty protections. It wasn't to increase oversight. 
and said it was to shoot the messenger. It was to throw shut the curtain on Idaho's factory farm system. And, you know, this is a, this is an issue that goes far beyond concern for animal welfare as well. It's a First Amendment issue. It's a freedom of speech issue. It's a food safety and environmental protection issue as well, because these these laws don't only target animal activists, they target um, environmentalists, food safety advocates, anyone who would take photographs of a factory farm or a slaughterhouse without the explicit consent of the owner. So you can imagine if you saw a crime happening in one of these facilities, whether it be a worker beating an animal or tainted meat going into the food supply, you would now become the criminal simply for snapping a photograph. And in many of these laws, the penalty for taking the photograph of the animal cruelty is harsher and more severe than the, the abuse of the animal uh, is, which is very troubling. It's un-American, and it shows um, just complete corruption of power uh, in states where these these laws have been enacted. Thank, thank you so much for your call. And uh, yeah, Nathan, yeah, I was going to, of course, ask about the ag-ag laws after we really delved into the investigations, just so we had uh, sort of a greater context for that. But let's let's get more into the investigations now. Let's talk about some, I mean, you know, a lot of Mercy for Animals investigations uh, have, have engendered huge changes at, at huge entities like McDonald's and Walmarts. Maybe you could uh, summarize at least a, a couple of those that, you know, that really seem to bring significant significant changes to the, to the landscape. Yeah, an, an investigation uh, from, from just last year at a major dairy supplier to DiGiorno Pizza, which is owned by Nestle, the, the world's largest food company, led to um, the most sweeping set of animal welfare policy changes I think our movement has ever seen. Um, we documented Again, workers stabbing animals, dragging them with forklifts, um, kicking them, uh, all sorts of, of, of horrific cruelty. Cows that were too sick or injured to even walk, um, being left to suffer, um, et cetera. So we, we released this footage publicly. We, we reached out to Nestle, and hundreds of thousands of people signed a petition calling on Nestle to, to make these changes. Um, dozens of celebrities tweeted about it. There was news media um, on an international level about this. And that led to multiple um, meetings and discussions with Nestle, which ultimately resulted in them implementing a worldwide animal welfare policy that affects 90 countries and not only addresses many of the worst abuses uh, within the dairy industry, but also um, required their pork suppliers to do away with gestation crates, tail docking and castration without pain relief, their egg producers to move away from battery cages, uh, their uh, veal producers to move away from, from veal crates, um, and that they were going to start looking into alternative slaughter methods for birds and growth rates and a whole host of, of animal welfare issues um, in all of animal agriculture. So that's, that is one recent example of the far-reaching impact that these investigations can have. And, and what we have found is that oftentimes the, the CEOs of these companies are very far removed from their own supply chain. They haven't been inside of these factory farms or these facilities, and they're as shocked uh, and outraged as, as most consumers are when they see this type of cruelty happening, um, which is why we tell them they must be proactive in implementing policies, and policies alone aren't enough. They have to have third-party auditing. They have to have oversight. There has to be some amount of accountability within this system, which currently just doesn't exist. Um, another example is we did an investigation at a veal supplier to Costco, the third largest grocery retailer in the U.S. And we documented standard practices, but practices that are just horrifically cruel. Baby calves chained by their necks inside of crates where they couldn't turn around. Motherless alone fed a diet that's uh, deficient of iron to induce anemia. And um, 24 hours after the release of this investigation, Costco announced an international policy um, banning the sale of veal from calves kept in these veal crates. We've also seen success on the, um, the law enforcement uh, angle. Uh, many years ago, or even not so, so long ago, it was nearly impossible to get cruelty prosecution for farmed animals, um, as the case that, that led to Mercy Framels being founded. 
um, represent. But through our investigations, uh, we have been able to change the tide in that, um, leading to literally dozens of prosecutions against individuals and companies found abusing animals, um, including the first ever felony conviction of cruelty to factory farm birds. And this was at a butterball facility in North Carolina. So the, the examples um, just go on and on, yeah. but there's, there's no secret as to why the meat industry is so adamant about passing ag-gag bills. And that's because they know investigations are so effective in pushing for change and shifting public opinion away from support of these systems. For sure. Well, a couple of things, too, that you said uh, just a moment ago, tying to, to, to something earlier. First of all, that discussing the ag-ag bills, I mean, yeah, you can see with the investigation that led to sort of a worldwide adoption of a policy, there's the corruption and the money at stake. You just see how people would say, well, uh, rather than <laughs> make the changes that we should make, let's let's stop these guys from uh, getting in and, and, and shooting those uh, videos. And, um, and yet, at the same time, what you mentioned earlier, about just how the whole social media uh, landscape has really altered things. I mean, when you guys do uh, release video footage, it almost instantly, whether, yeah, celebrities are tweeting and, and commenting on it as well, forces the hands of those CEOs who, yeah, in many cases, it does seem like they're legitimately surprised by what's gone on. And to, to many of their credits, at least, they seem to move incredibly swiftly, in some cases, firing everybody at the operation or shutting it down, at least temporarily. So yeah, it's very, very powerful. And I'm curious at this point, how much more difficult has it become to, to mount those kinds of undercover investigations? Aren't, aren't factory farming operations more savvy or at least more wary about hiring new employees? Employees for, for fear of sort of finding an, an undercover investigator in their midst, or what do Absolutely. people Absolutely. It, it is becoming uh, more difficult to do investigations. Uh, one is that more states uh, are enacting these ag-gag laws, and, and many of the states enacting them are the largest agricultural states that they are. Um, they hold far more factory farms and slaughterhouses. So, um, so that does make it, it more challenging to do investigations. But, but you're right. These industries are... Um, tuning in uh, much more into investigations because uh, many of these companies are losing huge clients and contracts uh, when when these investigations come out and abuse is exposed at their facilities. So, you know, whether it be running background checks on investigators or um, literally keeping a file on um, investigators that have done past case within not only their industry, but other animal agriculture industries. Um, you know, we, we have certainly had to move towards getting more investigators in the field and knowing that an, an investigator may only be able to do one or two cases now um, before their, their um, career, for lack of a better word, is, is over because the, the exposure is, is simply um, too high in the industry now. And given the, the power and the persuasiveness of the videos that, that do get released from these investigations, I'm wondering about the philosophical tenets behind releasing those video pieces. For example, what criteria is used to determine how long and especially how graphic the footage is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, when Whenever we send an investigator into a facility, it is exactly that. It is an investigation. So we, we will oftentimes know, for example, if it's, a, if it's a, an egg facility, that we'll be documenting battery cages and we'll be showing the inherent cruelty of those systems. We're going into a pig farm. It's a facility where, where mother pigs likely won't be able to turn around because they're in gestation crates. We'll see the tail box and the castration. But our investigators really are there to act as the eyes and ears for the public, and they let the cameras roll and document what happens. And each facility uh, varies it in, a, in a matter of degree, um, but not so much kind. We oftentimes do see physical abuse to the animals there from workers who are oftentimes overworked, overtaxed, rushed, um, and, and they're tasked with the job of moving frightened animals um, in, in a very quick amount of time. And, and that combination can lead to frustration and anger um, that, that can result in abuse to the animals there. So each case is a bit different. Um, it depends how long we keep investigators in facilities based on um, what we know may be happening in another area of a facility that we need to get an investigator in to document or documenting um, that, that a boss or supervisor is aware of what's taking place. But in terms of releasing it to the public, um, you know, we, we try to keep the, the videos under three minutes 
that's not because we only have three minutes of animal cruelty to show. It's because, you know, in, in this age, this day and age of, of social media and tweets and everything, having a five-minute life cycle on the Internet, um, it's really important to uh, whittle it down to the, the key findings um, and make it as, as viewable and shareable as possible uh, for people to see what's happening inside of these sounds like it's, at that point it's it's a time tension span issue because I was just wondering at what point does does graphic footage reach the point of diminishing return on some of these uh, instances yeah uh, you know what we have found is that uh, people are moved especially young people are moved to see what's what's really happening to these animals and uh, we're we're mindful of, of showing the reality without showing unnecessary blood and gore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we could certainly show a lot of footage of, of blood inside of these facilities and, and dead animals, um, you know, and carcasses and, and, and innards, but we, we, we want to show the, the cruelties. We want to show um, the, the suffering. And a lot of times that, that suffering are things like gestation crates. Um, it, it's things like lifelong confinement and deprivation for these animals. Um, something that's not on its face, bloody or gory, but arguably causes more horrific suffering and more long-term suffering than 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 some of the more uh, shocking abuses would. Sure. And to be able to, to highlight those those practices and push for change. Well, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, Nathan, but let me at least get to one or two of our uh, emails, one of which says, uh, do uh, those ag-gag laws extend into contamination of water resources by these factory farms? That's a, that's a good question. And, and one of the concerns about ag-gag is that oftentimes they are so broadly worded and um, so vague that um, it could certainly be interpreted as applying to these types of things. And again, each state um, has a, a, a slight ver- variation on their ag-gag bill. So some would probably lean into um, being more of a concern in this area than others. But there's a reason why there's a coalition of well over 60 organizations, many of which are environmental organizations, others are civil rights organizations, um, who oppose ag-gag bills because it's not just bad for animals. It's bad for humans. It's bad for the environment. Um, it's bad for workers. Um, you know, we really believe that we need more transparency in our food supply, not less. And the only way to have a truly functioning democracy is to have important, though sometimes difficult, discussions about problems that we face. And the way in which we treat animals, the factory farm system, is a real problem that we need to face. And the factory farm industry wants to create a one-sided discussion, a one-way street, where they're the only ones who can release images inside these facilities, where they're the only ones who can talk about what's happening. They want to silence anyone who will expose these facilities for what they are. And with that in mind, I think uh, as we as we uh, come to the end of our time here, we should point out that every legislative session, there seems to be new ag-gag bills pending. I think uh, it's about, th- what, three weeks or so ago, I think, didn't Wyoming sign one into law? Well, the, the Wyoming bill actually was uh, very much targeted towards these water collection examples yeah. by, by environmentalists. Um, our interpretation of that law is that it does not prevent investigations okay. um, by animal organizations based okay. on its wording. Yeah. But again, that's one of the, the concerns of this legislation is, is, is all of them have such a, a broad um, term uh, for, for interpretation. For sure. Well, Nathan, we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Nathan Runkle, the president and founder of Mercy for Animals. A uh, great website is mercyforanimals.org, where you can find out more about the things we've been talking about, all the various uh, campaigns and other uh, parts of their, uh, again, very ambitious slate of activities, and, and of course, about uh, some of the ag-ag laws that, we sh- that we've been discussing and, and ways that people can uh, get involved with helping to, f- to, to fight those. And uh, Nathan, thank you so much for all your great work, and thanks for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. In a moment, we'll hear my conversation with Joan Jett, who opens for The Who at the Amelie Arena in Tampa two weeks from today. Right just now, let's step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner and a nod to our conversation a moment ago with Nathan Munkle. This is Mike Kaplan with a piece called Meat and Robots on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals. I ate a lot of fake meat, like your tofurkeys, your phony balonies, your nut dogs. Those are real names of fake meats. 
inspired me to come up with some fake names for fake meats that aren't real yet. Like a fake chicken called Fiction, how about that one? Or Chicken Pretenders, that's nice. Or Baby Back Fibs, or a fake deer called Venisn't, I don't know, you know? Work with me. Some people wonder, why do you want to eat fake meat when you don't like meat? You don't, want, you don't eat meat. Why do you want something that pretends to be the thing that you don't like? Well, I answer that because I don't like the suffering involved in the creation of meat, but I'm fine to have it look like it or smell or taste like it if you can do it without the suffering. Like the same way I don't like slavery, but I'd be fine to have robots that look like black people. Obviously, there may be something wrong with that. Okay, hold on. Let me back up for a second and try to figure that out. There. Something is amiss. Wait, I have it. It is that if you eat fake chicken in front of a real chicken, it doesn't give a sh. But if you have a black robot in front of a black human, it's like, what the f? That was Mike Kaplan with part of a piece called Meat and Robots, taken from his album Meat Robot. Right now, let's move into my brief conversation with Joan Jett, who opens for The Who at Amelie Arena April 15th, the kickoff to The Who Hits 50 North American Tour, recorded yesterday. This is Joan Jett. On Talking Animals. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals, Joan. Thank you very much. There's Good to a, be here. Yeah, well, there's a lot about music and a lot about animals I hope to cover, yet I think we've only got about 10 minutes, so we're going to talk really, really fast. So okay. um, let's start with something that's happening about 10 minutes from the radio station, opening for The Who on April 15th right here in Tampa. In fact, opening all the dates of the North American tour. Tell me a little bit about that. If I'm not mistaken, you have some real real history with The Who. Yes. For, you know, First of all, we're really excited about this, and, and like Tampa is the first date of the whole, uh, of the whole tour, but the way... The way that I got to know The Who, beyond being just a, a fan, uh, was my my partner, Kenny Laguna, my songwriting partner, he's my producer, got stuck being my manager, but he was also the first Blackheart in the band when yeah. we started writing together. And at the time, um, the Runaways had just broken up, and Kenny had been working in England quite a lot with The Who organization, doing various projects for them, producing bands like the Steve Gibbons Band, and, and working out of The Who's Ramport Studios, it's called. And um, so after Kenny and I I hooked up. He wanted to go to England because he knew the studio, and we, we had written a bunch of songs and went there to start recording, and we're about to sign a record deal that we were a little bit, you know, didn't feel great about, and the guy just happened to blurt out that he, he knew he knew Pete Townsend. So funny enough, that night, uh, Pete dropped by our flat and came up to talk to Kenny about some stuff, and so Kenny asked him about this guy, and um, Pete recommended that we don't go that route, and that we just stay within ourselves and talk to the Who's manager, Bill Kerbishley, and that, that Bill pretty much just said, go in the studio, record what you got to record, and pay us when you can. And that album be- became the Bad Reputation album, um, which was my first album, yeah. and had that not happened, I mean, you know, we were really in dire straits, and it was uh, a tough, a tough, tough time. So if they hadn't given us that freedom uh, to do that, uh, you know, I have no idea if there would even be a Black Arts right now, or where I'd be. Um, so, I, you know, you just have to really hand it to guys like that, just beyond just making music, they also nurture other people. So yeah. I thought that was definitely worth bringing up. For sure, no, that's uh, sage counsel from Pete Townsend, among all his many other uh, talents, and it sounds you like it, to- it totally was a pivotal point in your uh, in your career. So, uh, so that's great, because there's a lot of uh, North American dates, and uh, you're opening all of them, and that's going to be a blast. And then three days after the kickoff to the Who Tour, just down the road from where I'm speaking to you on April 18th, you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So first of all, congratulations. Thank that must be much. thrilling. And I've seen the names of some of the folks who will be inducting some of your fellow nominees, but who's inducting you? I'm not sure yet. Okay. It hasn't really, uh, you know, been told to me. Okay. All right. So I think, uh, I don't know if people so you are going to keep it a surprise or what. Okay, so so the, the actual nominee doesn't have a say or doesn't get to select necessarily, or? I'm not sure what other people get to do, okay. but I know on in my circumstance, no. I'm okay. I, as far as I can tell, I'm not choosing it. Okay. Well, meanwhile, of course, you were no slouch at uh, at last year's Hall of Fame ceremony, uh, famously blowing the roof off the the place with your version of uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit." So I'm sure, yeah, wh- whoever that was such a trip. Yeah, that was awesome, and uh, I mean, it must have been an amazing night. It was. It was. Uh, you know, initially, it, Dave asked me uh, about ten days out if I would be interested in doing. And I, you know, what can you do? At first, you go, "Oh my God, that's so scary!" On one hand, and yet, as a music fan and as a 
person who loved that band so much and listened over and over again and learned the songs like so many other uh, people, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't say no. Yeah. You know, and you just had to go into it as a fan and do the best you could, being respectful, but hey, it's rock and roll, and if we mess it up, we mess it up, and if we don't, great. So actually, I was strangely calm. I'm one of these people that I get, you know, I get pretty edgy before I go on. I'm, it's like a contained even insanity. Even now, all these years later? Oh, still, yeah. yeah. All yeah. these, Interesting. yeah, depending yeah. on what it is. You know, okay. like maybe for a regular show, uh, you know, for a regular concert gig yeah. that I'm used to doing, I'll be a bit nervous, but yeah. it's more like, it's more contained. I'm, I'm not necessarily scared, because I know what I'm walking into. Sure. Something like this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, yeah. that's nerve-wracking, because you don't really know. You know what you're going to do when you're going to play, but you don't really know how things are going to break down, how the speech goes, the timing, because you don't really get to rehearse it. It sounds like a lot of unknowns that you're contending with while you're waiting. Sort of. Yeah, 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 sort of. And I think we're on first because we have to get back down to Florida to the Who. Yeah. Because it's in between dates, you know? Right, right, right. No, I mean, it's going to be amazing, but I'm sure you're going to uh, rock it uh, again, and uh, two years running, you'll probably be uh, one of the standout uh, parts of the evening. So really, uh, really excited about that for you. So let me let folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm speaking with Joan Jett, who opens for the Who April 15th at Tampa's Amelie Arena. And in fact, opens all the Who shows on the North American tour. And then, as we just discussed, three days later, gets inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This conversation was recorded yesterday. As many of your listeners know, Joan, is, and in fact, as we discussed on the show about five years ago, you're a lifelong animal lover and often advocate on their behalf. What, what is it about animals that speak so meaningfully to you? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that connection? Well, it goes back to being so so young, you know, so I think it's 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 not even necessarily a verbal thing because I connected with animals at a very young age and before I could speak words necessarily. There's an I- I- intuition, I think, um, in a, in obviously in all animals, but I I just. Uh, <laughs> I just love them. I can't really tell you why, but yeah. I I love them all, and it's it's not um, whether you're talking about snakes or people, you know, things, the rhinos or any any cats and dogs, you know, the whole gamut. I love them all, and I'm in, and I'm fascinated by them, and um, I'm I'm happy about that. And, and I like to protect them now. You know, I'm I'm doing my best to turn that corner. I used to wear a lot of leather, and um, I don't really do that anymore. And any leather I do have, I feel like I'm protecting it. You know, and to make sure that it's life after its horrible death is treated with respect until I don't use that piece anymore. But as far as buying new leather, uh, it's not something I'm going to be doing. And so what, what animals live with you at the moment? Well, right now, I just have two cats. Mm-hmm. I, I just lost my, my third buddy about four months ago. Oh, um, geez, so sorry. Uh, it, yeah, it's another, really tough. Another cat? Uh, yeah, another, this, yeah, another cat. Uh-huh. I, I find for me, you know, because I'm gone so much, that, that having a dog, unless I had somebody living in the house, and it's just not fair, you know, to the animal that needs to get out and run and I live on a beach and that would be great to have a dog but um, I just can't right now with the schedule I've got but you know I've owned all sorts of animals from you know turtles and reptiles and all sorts of things but so the cats seem to be what I, what I can have right now and I spend my time feeding the, the, the birds the wild birds that are outside when I can and, and uh, trying to keep my cats away from them but I, I look forward to adding to my menagerie in the future sure so then when you're on the road and you're obviously on the road a lot and about to be on the road a, a lot with the who do you find when you have some some downtime or days off between dates or whatever that you seek out animals or one kind or another just to sort of get a get a fix in a sense? Yeah, well, yeah. Or some, I mean, I've done things like fly home for a night. Wow. Just to, okay. Just oh yeah, yeah. Get a, get a fix. Know, get a fix with it's, your own cats. That's perfect. It's That's crazy, even better. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy, and I've got um, one of those home security systems uh, camera situations where I can it hooks up to my iPad and iPhone, so I can look in on them and talk to them. Oh, great! They can't see me. But I point to the cameras and say, when you hear me talking, this is where it's coming from. And I, so, wow. <laughs> you know, I don't know if they understand me, but at least they can hear my voice while I'm gone. Yeah. And, you know. That's almost like Skyping with your cats. That's cool. Exactly. Exactly. That's Except cool. they can't see me. No, but still, one way at least is better than no way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So at least they hear my voice, and, and, and that's nice. And uh, That's cool. You know, I come home and get constantly hit up for treats, and that's, I think, <laughs> yeah. all I'm good for sometimes. Well, but the virtues of technology, when you can visit with your cats from a uh, from a tour date, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yes, but 
I do uh, sometimes seek out, not seek out animals. I, like, I won't go, you know, the, 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 I think our schedule on the road is just so tough that yeah. any extra time I have, I'm usually just resting up for that night. Sure. Whatever's coming. Recharging. But I'll yeah. tell you, I've met my fair share of either strays or local area strollers, you know, dogs or cats that uh, hang around a hotel sure. or an area, a venue or something and make friends with them. Yeah. So, yeah, many, many videos and pictures of, of animals I've met on the road. I'm sure, and they're probably happy to see you because they could probably tell uh, uh, someone a kindred spirit. So they're probably thinking, hey, this, this lady's cool. We like her. So uh, I don't know. I think animals, they can tell that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. That's what I mean. They, they think, oh, wow, here's, here's a friend of ours that we just now are meeting. So, uh, and I never show fear, which could be it's probably stupid in, in some ways. But, you know, some people are always very you know, hesitant walking up to an animal, and they can obviously sense that. Yeah. So when you're not hesitant at all, then they come you know, right up. You get yeah, a better chance safe. of a nice interaction. Yeah. Well, I know we only have about a minute or so left, but let me uh, let me just mention too that SeaWorld has been in the news again lately, uh, partly because of their new ad touting what a wonderful place it is and how misunderstood it is in the wake of Blackfish. And this uh, ex-trainer John Hargrove just published a new book, uh, you know, all about SeaWorld. You have kind of an unusual vantage point in viewing SeaWorld, given that you learned uh, a while back that they were using I Love Rock and Roll to open, you know, one of its uh, orca shows, and you had to force them to stop. Any further thoughts? Thoughts on SeaWorld or any further contact once you got them to stop playing that song at the beginning of their uh, orca show? Um, not, not from me. I mean, I don't know that they've contacted us, or I just wanted you know to, to have for that to stop till I knew what was going on. Yeah. And, and to a greater degree, and I up to this point I haven't really been able to suss that out yet. Yeah. And did you see Blackfish? The movie? I've I've not seen the whole film, but I've seen uh, portions of it. Pretty damning, and seems to have really had uh, quite a quite an impact. So, um, so lastly, I'm just curious. What, what are your thoughts on, on the Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act? I mean, Wilco just canceled the show that they had scheduled coming up in Indiana. I don't think the Who Tour has an Indiana date, but, but how would you feel about performing there in light of this so-called new religious freedom law that they've uh, just uh, pushing through? Well, obviously, it's gotten everyone up in arms. I was watching uh, over the past two nights the, the news about it, and um, uh, it's. It, I think. I just think it's a ridiculous sort of uh, premise in these days to do that kind of thing and and make it try to make it seem okay to discriminate. Yeah. I mean, there's no line. You know, it's like you're saying saying religious freedom. You could sort of deny anybody for any reason. You know, yeah. just saying basing it on you know my religion doesn't allow me to serve girls that wear pants or you know whatever. Yeah. It's just I do see it as a very slippery slope as well as many other people do. Sure. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. That that much about us laying there or doing gigs or anything like that, but I'm going to be watching how this is going to turn out and whether they're going to adjust that law or do something because I know not just rock bands, but you know you got the NCAA Final Four there. Sure, it's based there. You've got you know all um, these CEOs that have written uh, major, major, major corporations that have written letters saying this is crazy. You can't do this. Well, yeah, I think that's yeah. actually very wonderful to, 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 that that it, and that it was so immediate and intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's great. Uh, yeah. And shows people that look, you know, in America we gotta we gotta we gotta act what we say. We have to be who we say we are. Right. You know, if you don't discriminate, you've got to really attempt to make that come to pass. You can't couch it in in weird language and laws right. and try to hide behind religion. And when something's that outrageous, luckily people seem to be uh, responding with outrage, which is the exact right, right response. Right. So uh, right, because it, it kind of makes the religion not look not look open. Yeah. So Joan, I know we're sort of reaching our time. Maybe we want to hair over, but thank you. So much for joining us again on Talking Animals, and again, people will look for you uh, on uh, April fifteenth, uh, opening uh, for the Who at Amelie Arena in Tampa, and then throughout the Who tour, and again uh, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction April eighteenth, which later will be televised. So we'll look forward to that. So thanks again, and congratulations, and great talking to you as always. Great speaking to you too, Duncan. You have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you. That's uh, Talking Animals for today. Rob Laura is next.